You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you and praise you again for this opportunity that we have, Father, to gather together around the Word of God. Father, we're seated at your table, ready to receive and to be fed tonight. And Lord, I thank you that the Word of God is alive. It is food for our spirits. And Father, we believe, Lord, in Jesus' name that we're going to be taught tonight. We believe for revelation. We believe for insight. Father, I'm asking you for your help tonight, Lord, in order to say what you want me to say, to think what you want me to think. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that we'll all have hearing ears tonight ready to receive. And Father, we're going to, by the time we get through, be different than when we started. And Lord, we thank you for it and we praise you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, turn in your Bibles with me to, to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, this is week number six in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I do have 10 pages of notes tonight, but if I don't get, get through it all, then uh, we'll just continue next week. But we're going to do our best to just uh, see how much we can cover tonight. But let's look at Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to break it down and make some commentary and so uh, Jesus said, uh, and I'm not going to spend any time on review, if that's all right with y'all. Y'all have been been there all, all the way, so you pretty much know where we are. So in uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, he says, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, just for clarification, uh, in the, the original language, when he's talking about a speck, he's talking about a splinter-sized piece of wood. And then when he's talking about a plank, he's referring to a, a, a large beam. You know, we might say a telephone pole or something along that line. And so Jesus is addressing, and he starts out in verse 1, he's addressing believers, judging other believers, He's not even talking about what the world does and so forth. He'll, he'll talk about that a little later on, but he's talking about believers judging other believers. Now, what does it mean to judge someone? Well, let me give you a definition. To judge someone means that you act like a judge in a court of law and you render a verdict. In other words, you determine ahead of time whether somebody is guilty or innocent. And, you know, a lot of times human nature is to, uh, we look at somebody, we look at their lives or, uh, you know, we just look at something about them, you know, and we determine and, and render a verdict on them and determine that they're already guilty. And, uh, you know, what's so serious about this and why, why Jesus emphasizes this to this point is the fact that 
God looks on the act of judging in our hearts and he sees it as very uh, serious. And when we have that attitude, that critical judgmental attitude, it's worse than whatever we're judging that person for. In other words, if that person is guilty and we are judging them for that, the fact that we are being judgmental and critical in our own hearts is worse in God's heart and God's mind than the sin that the people might actually be committing. So it's a really big deal. Now, a critical judgmental spirit or heart is really rooted in pride because what we're doing is we're looking down on someone thinking that we are in a higher position and we are able to judge them. And, and in truth be told, let's just go ahead and establish right now that none of us have any right or place to judge anybody. You know, the Bible Amen. says in Romans that we're all sinners, okay? So we are all guilty, uh, you know, and of course, Jesus has delivered us and redeemed us. But, you know, let's not forget where we came from before Christ and be sure that we don't esteem ourselves in a position that we can judge someone and render a verdict uh, in their life. Now, if you want to put your little ribbon there in uh, Matthew chapter seven, and let's go over to the gospel of Luke chapter six, Luke chapter six, and I want to read verses 37 and 38. And uh, you are going to be very familiar with verse 38. You're, I'm sure you've heard it before, but very often we quote verse 38 in regards to giving of offerings and so forth. And we fail uh, to read verse 37, which the two are connected. And so in Luke chapter six, verse 37, uh, Jesus said, judge not and you shall not be judged, condemn not and you shall not be condemned, forgive and you shall be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, again, we, we like to quote this verse where our giving is concerned, and rightfully so, it does apply to that. But we often forget the things that Jesus talked about. Notice he said, don't judge, don't condemn, and forgive. In other words, here's what Jesus is telling us, that if you plant seeds of judgment, you're going to reap judgment. If you plant seeds of condemnation, you're going to reap condemnation. If you plant seeds of forgiveness, you will receive forgiveness. Now, here's the, the, the spiritual law, and again, we often apply it to our giving financially, but Jesus tied it in, and he said this, and the law is this. If you sow this, you can guarantee that you're going to get more in return. So if you sow a little bit of judgment, you're going to get a lot of judgment in return. If you sow a little bit of condemnation, then you're going to get a lot of condemnation in return. And on the positive side, if you sow forgiveness, you're going to receive a lot of forgiveness. The law of sowing and reaping is a law of multiplication. And so what we have to understand is that those things that we sow just know that you're going to reap a harvest and it will always be greater than the amount that you sowed. So it's very important that we remember that. Now, 
You know, I, I heard a minister say this, and I want you to think about this with me. You know, I, very often we we think the the law of sowing and reaping only reaps uh, only applies rather to good seed. Okay, and let's think in the natural. But did you know the same law that will produce corn and green beans and soybeans and all the good things that we like to eat? That same law will produce marijuana. It will produce poppy, which we make heroin from and all the negative things. And so the same law will produce things from either good seed or bad seed that's sown. And so just don't get it in your thinking that only what I give, you know, as far as, as finances towards the gospel and so forth, that's what's going to be multiplied back to me. You know, I learned a long time ago, one of the things that I often do when I receive criticism is, is as I ask myself this question, am I reaping something that I have sown or are they sowing something that they're going to reap later? Okay. So if you'll remind yourself of that and ask yourself, okay, you know, when somebody, you know, gives some criticism towards you, you know, evaluate your heart, man, have I sown some seeds of criticism somewhere and now I'm reaping the harvest of that? Or have, if I haven't, then pray for that other person because they're sowing seeds of criticism that, that unless they repent, they're going to reap a harvest of those seeds. All right. So, so in other words, when we judge, we condemn and, and so forth, we can expect more of that to be heaped back upon us. So let's go back to Matthew chapter seven. And uh, I want to look at verses four and five again. Jesus said, oh, how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. So in other words, again, remember a speck is like a splinter. And a plank, it would be, you know, just to use our modern vernacular, say a telephone pole, okay, huge contrast. And that's the image that Jesus is, is trying to get across to his disciples. And so he says, you know, let me, he says, how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. And this verse five, he says this hypocrite. Now the term hypocrite in, in Jesus day was a theatrical term. You know, they had theater back then and had drama plays and so forth. And very often, you know, of course, they didn't have elaborate costumes and so forth like we would today and special effects and all that type of thing. So oftentimes that the person that would be acting in the amphitheater or whatever it might be would wear a mask to indicate the character that they were trying to portray. And a hypocrite can be translated this way. One who speaks from behind a mask. Okay. So the reason Jesus uses that term when he says hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, you're wearing a mask trying to portray to everybody else that you don't have a plank in your eye. You, you know, you are, you just have a splinter. And so uh, you're pretending to be something that you're not. That's what a hypocrite does. And so it's very dangerous for us to occupy that place. Now, Jesus is telling us that we are, and it's okay to help remove the splinter from somebody else, but we're supposed to do it with love and mercy and compassion and tenderness. You know, 
you know, can you remember when you were a child and you might've been outside and got a splinter in your finger and you went and told your parents about it and, uh, you know, what they would do to try and get that splinter out, you know, they didn't beat you up and then, then pull the splinter out. No, what they did is very gently might've gotten some tweezers or a needle or something and, uh, you know, use that to get the splinter out. Uh, but with tenderness and with love and what Jesus is telling us that if we're going to help somebody else get the splinter out of their eye, then we're going to have to do it with compassion and mercy and tenderness. Uh, just make a note of a couple of verses. First Peter chapter three and verse eight, first Peter chapter three and verse eight, it says this, finally, all of you be in what be of one mind, having compassion for one another love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. So yeah, we're supposed to help one another, but always be mindful that we're supposed to do it with a heart of compassion, a heart of tenderness. And, uh, you know, again, we're not trying to judge other people. We're not rendering a verdict. All of us have blind spots. All of us have areas of our lives where we need help. And if you are able to be in a, a relationship with somebody that you're in that position to where you can help them along those lines. You know, there is a scripture that says, just be mindful. And this is my paraphrasation, but just be mindful when you're trying to help somebody else or correct somebody else, be mindful that you could fall into the very same position. And so that helps you be tenderhearted. All right. So in Galatians chapter six and verse one, Galatians chapter six and verse one says this brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Okay. So we all, we all need to help one another, but always do it with an attitude of I'm, a, I'm in the same boat they are. I'm just trying to help them. I'm just trying to do it out of love and compassion. Never from a place of I'm superior. I, I'm more spiritual than you and all those types of things, because I promise you, uh, you know, the greatest saint, no matter uh, who they are, other than Jesus, all of us have flaws. All of us have things that we're working on. All right. So look at verse six in Matthew chapter seven. And Jesus says something and he's, he's kind of changing the subject a little bit, but he says something that's really interesting. He's, and again, please keep in mind, he's talking to his disciples. He's not talking to the general congregation here. So he says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. Now, when Jesus uses the phrase dogs and swine, he's, he's using that figuratively to refer to people who are not in a relationship with God. If you'll remember, uh, you remember the Samaritan woman that are the, excuse me, Syrophoenician woman that came and wanted Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus said, I can't take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And you remember she came back and she said, yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And of course, Jesus was trying to help her faith, but uh, the she made the own reference that those people that were not Jewish were referred to as dogs. 
And of course, you know, swine, uh, hogs, if you were, were not allowed, uh, you know, among the Jewish population. They weren't supposed to be eating and partaking of pork. So this is what Jesus is saying. Be careful. Now, with pearls, when he talks about pearls, he's talking about something of great value. And I cannot think of anything that the Lord entrusts to us that is of great value that is more valuable than revelation that he gives us from the word of God by the Holy Spirit. That is highly valuable. It's very precious. It, it should be very valuable and precious to us. And what Jesus is saying is don't take what uh, is valuable and precious to us, revelation that God gives us by the Holy Spirit and cast it before people who aren't interested in hearing it and will only take it and turn it against you. And, you know, I've, I've even had Christians do that, you know, where they'll take things out of context. They'll take things, uh, you know, that you uh, didn't, didn't mean to say, or, 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 you know, something along that line and will twist it and turn it back on you. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And you need to use wisdom. You know, the things that God shares with you and the revelation that you get other than the plain gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not meant for everybody. It's not meant for you to share with everybody. Now, the gospel is something totally different. Jesus Christ, him crucified and raised from the dead is something that we are to proclaim and declare to everyone. But the revelation that we get, you know, from church and our own Bible study and prayer time is very valuable and very precious to us. And you must use wisdom in who you share that with, because as Jesus said, they will take that and trample it under their feet and turn against you with it, especially, now listen to me carefully, especially if it places them under conviction, okay? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing that we have to do is we've got to be aware of this. Don't try and be people's Holy Spirit. Now, if, if, the, if the Lord leads you to share something, that's entirely different. But how many of you know sometimes we try and help God out and share some things with people that we really don't need to share with them, you know, because we're trying to maybe sway them in a certain direction and, and, and so forth. Let God direct you with that. And, uh, you know, just be mindful and, and uh, what you do and the, how you steward those revelations that God gives you. Now look at verse seven. Again, Jesus, you know, he's just kind of covering multiple points here with his disciples and he says this, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. All right, so let me just stop right there and say this. Um, Jesus is, is talking about prayer. He's talking about pursuing spiritual things. And uh, now listen, what he's saying to us is be persistent with those things. You know, we're not, <laughs> I think somehow in the body of Christ, we have a misbelief that if we pray long enough and hard enough and repeat the same thing, we'll wear God down to where eventually he'll answer our prayers. And that's not what Jesus is telling us here. What Jesus is telling us, let me give you an example. Let's say there, 
you're reading through the scriptures and uh, in your prayer and meditation time, and uh, you come across a section of scripture that just does not make any sense to you. You, know, you just don't understand, especially you know in the gospels, in Jesus' teaching, and you don't understand what was the point that he was trying to make. Well, when Jesus said, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you, what he's telling you is stay with that until you receive the revelation that you're desiring to receive. Continue to meditate on that portion of scripture. Ask the Holy Spirit for his help in bringing that insight to you. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times if there's something that we don't understand, we just kind of toss it aside and keep going instead of being persistent with it and staying with it until we get that insight and that revelation that God wants us to have. And then he goes on in verse nine and he says, or what man is there among you? And he, he again, he's, he's talking about the character of God here. He says, uh, what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So again, just reminding you of what I've said all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and that is this, when Jesus refers to God as the Father or your Father or his Father, however he verbalizes it, you have to understand that is not the way the disciples have heard God referred to probably all of their lives. And so there is, in Jesus' day, as there is today, a lot of misconception and misbelief about the character of God. So what Jesus is trying to tell people and, and tell his disciples and to tell us is that God is a loving Heavenly Father, and if you ask for revelation, he's going to give you revelation. If you ask for something, and, and uh, he uses this same reference in another uh, gospel where he's talking about receiving the Holy Spirit. If you ask the Lord for the baptism and the Holy Spirit, you're not going to get anything else but the ability to be able to receive the Holy Spirit. So God doesn't play a, a bait and switch type thing. He gives you what you seek after and what you ask for. And I love what Jesus said, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? All right. Now, so all the way from the end of chapter four, all of chapter five, all of chapter six, and up to this point in chapter seven, Jesus has been ministering to his disciples. But my, you know, the scriptures doesn't specifically tell us this, but in my imagination, what I believe is beginning to happen is the crowd is growing. The, the crowds have now found out where Jesus is. You know, the Bible says that they would very often pursue him. He'd try and go spend some time in prayer. They'd find out where he was. They'd chase him down. And I believe that that is what is happening here. He has spent this time talking his, to his disciples. And so now the crowd is beginning to gather. And so in verse 13, he begins to um, change. Well, let me read verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
All right, so he, he's talking about the what we know as the golden rule there. All right, but then in verse 13, he changes gears and he begins to talk about the plan of salvation. He begins to direct the people towards a relationship with God. So that's how we know that he's kind of moved on or moved past just teaching the disciples, and now he's beginning to address someone else. So let's let's read verses 13 and 14. He says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult or straight is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So what is he saying here? He's referring to a, a, a narrow gate, and he's referring to a broad gate. Okay, so Jesus is referring to the way to a relationship with him and to eternal life. So he compares it to gates and roads. So the narrow gate that Jesus is referring to is very narrow. Now get this, and you might want to make a note of this. The narrow gate that Jesus is referring to is wide enough for two people to fit, you and him. Because when it comes down to your relationship with Jesus Christ, the multitudes have nothing to do with that. Your relationship with God through Christ depends upon two people, you and what Jesus did for you. So when he refers to the narrow gate, he's referring to a gate that only two people can, can fit through. And in doing this, he's referring to himself being the only way to salvation. Now, when he refers to uh, the Broadway or the broad gate, okay, he says the gate that leads to destruction is very wide and very broad. Now, let me paint this picture for you. In Jesus' day, there were many, many religions, okay? Uh, you know, all you have to do is spend some time in the Old Testament, read all about the idol worship and things that people were involved in. So there were many religions back then, just as there are today. And what Jesus is saying when he says broad is the way that leads to destruction, he's simply saying that all of the religions of the world, other than Christianity, can stand side by side and walk down that road to destruction. That's how wide it is, okay? So this is how broad the way is that leads to hell and destruction. Now, the way to heaven through Jesus is not narrow because it's difficult. Getting, you know, if you think about it, y'all, and, and we've all experienced it, but if you think about it, getting saved is one of the easiest things that a human being could ever do. It's just simply opening, opening your heart, receiving and believing what Jesus has already done for you. I often say Jesus has did all the work. He did the hard part. The easy part is ours in receiving it. Now, I didn't say walking that out is easy, but the, the entrance into the new birth is the easiest thing that a human being could possibly do. Now, contrary to what the world proclaims, 
You know, you're going to hear the world proclaim things like, there are many ways to get to God. There are many ways to get to heaven. You know, that there isn't just one path that will bring you to heaven. Uh, no, Jesus, we know the scripture teaches that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you need to understand something. Jesus is the most narrow-minded person that has ever walked the planet. I mean, he had the guts to tell his disciples exactly what I just said to you. He stood up and he told them, I am the way. Notice he didn't say, I am a way. He said, I am the way, the truth. I'm not a truth. The word of God is not a truth. The word of God is the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's found in John 14 and verse 6. So there is only one way out of the pit. There's only one way out of darkness, and that is through and by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is telling them, since we know that way, you and I are obligated to tell people that way. You know, I heard this illustration that if, if you and a group of people were lost in a cave and it was dark, it was damp, it was, you know, just a, a, a bad place to be, and you figured out a way out and you could see the way out and you go out and now you're on the outside looking at them and they're still lost in the cave, would you be wrong if you did not tell them the way out? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. And that's what preaching the gospel is all about. It's not about a pulpit. It's not about a platform. It's about simply you and me having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he is the way out of that pit, out of that cave, out of that darkness and so we are obligated to tell people that are still trapped in that darkness and in that pit, in that cave, that we know the way out, that we know how to help them. All right? Now, let's look at verse 15. So again, Jesus is, is just hitting on some high points. So he says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, I want to just highlight a couple of things to you. Again, pay attention to the details. Notice Jesus did not say them, that we would know them by their prophecies and we would know them by their teachings. He said we would know them by their fruit. Okay. Now, why did he say that? Because there are people who don't know Jesus, who know our lingo, who know our language, who know how to say the right things, who know how to look the right way, that know how to act a certain way. But the difference is going to be in their production of fruit. What kind of fruit are they producing? All right. Now, Going back to what Jesus said in early when we first started, 
We are not allowed to judge people, but we are allowed to inspect fruit. Okay? Know the difference. When we judge someone, we're rendering a verdict on them, guilty or not guilty. But when we examine fruit, we're looking at what their lives are producing. Okay? False prophets know how to prophesy and to teach and take the scriptures and turn them for their purposes. And if you listen to them long enough, you will get confused. Okay? It's very, very important because we're going to look at a couple of scriptures in just a moment, but the day and the time that we're living in, there are a lot of voices out there. Okay? So this is why we can never get into debates. <laughs> I want to say this to you. Listen, when people come and knock on your door and they aren't Christians, they're maybe Jehovah's Witnesses or something along that line, don't get involved in a debate with them. They're deceived and they are confused. And if you tell them, I believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised from the dead, and he is the Lord of my life, if that's not enough for them, leave them alone. You do not need to get involved in a debate because here's what they're after. And really, it's you know a spirit that's motivating them, but here's what they're after. If they can stick with you long enough, they will tell you enough good mixed with the wrong so that they can bring confusion to you and bring you to a place where you will begin to question what you believe. And if you believe what the Bible teaches, okay, listen, let the chips fall where they may for everybody else and those people that come and knock on your door. Pray for them, but listen, don't spend and waste your time with them. They do not want to change, okay? So, again, what are their fruits? Well, you know, notice what Jesus said. He said, uh, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Uh, thorn bushes, obviously. You know, you don't go out and get, get uh, blackberries off of a thorn bush, it doesn't work that way, okay? You, you examine the fruit. And uh, thistles, back in Jesus' day, was actually a cactus. It was a form of a cactus, and neither one of those will produce. A, a thorn bush will not produce grapes, and a cactus never, ever will produce figs. In other words, these plants are never going to produce fruits of righteousness, all right. Now, here's how you know. Now, write this down, please. If you don't get anything else out of what I get tonight, write this down. Righteous fruit will always benefit more than the fruit producer. Let me say that again. Righteous fruit will always benefit more than the fruit producer. I'll say it one more time. Righteous fruit, what somebody's life is producing, will always benefit more than the fruit producer if it's the right kind of fruit, if it's righteous fruit. So in other words, if someone is prophesying and teaching and they're the only ones that are benefiting from that ministry, 
their fruit is not good. Okay, that's why I often say, and again, I'm not, not being critical when I say this, but you need to examine things. If you go to a church and the one who is prospering the most is the pastor and nobody else in the church is prospering and growing and becoming uh, more like Christ, then there's a problem. Okay, because if, for instance, in, in, in using myself as an example, uh, the fruit that I produce ought to be something that you can feed off of, not just for my own benefit. Does that make sense to you? Yes, sir. Okay. See, when the Lord is behind the fruit production, not only will the minister be changed, but the lives of those that are listening will be changed for the better and brought into God's plan for their lives. And so that's a good way to examine it. All right. So in verse 17, he goes on to say, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Now, I want to add in there that this is included in the original language. It just did not make it into the, to the translation. So write this, you know, in your Bible or just make a note of it. Even so, every good tree continually bears good fruit, but a bad tree continually bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot continually bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree continually bear good fruit. Now, here's why we needed to add that for clarification. And that's why, because we're all human and occasionally we're going to make a mistake and bear some bad fruit, but we're talking about on a continuous long-term basis. Okay. And so when you examine uh, and look at fruit, what is continually being produced? All right. So verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. All right. Now, verse 19 is referring to something that is a destiny that awaits these false prophets and teachers. So put your ribbon there in Matthew chapter 7, and let's go to Matthew chapter 24 and look at verses 23 through 25. Matthew 24, verses 23, 24, and 25. Matthew 24, verse 23. Okay. Jesus said here, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, there is the Christ, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Now, it's interesting that he used the word false Christs. Now, what he's referring to, the word Christ there in the Greek language is Christos. In other words, ones who proclaim that they are anointed. Okay? So, therefore, if anyone says to you, look, here is the anointed one, or there is the anointed one, don't believe it. For false anointed ones... And false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. All right. 
Now, go over with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, this is going to be of utmost importance for us as believers because we're living in a day and time that what we're reading right now from Matthew 24 and what we're getting ready to read from Timothy is being fulfilled. It is coming to pass. It was happening then, but it is especially happening now. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, 1. Paul writing to Timothy. Now keep in mind, Timothy is a young man and Paul is his mentor. And so he's mentoring Timothy where uh, pastoring and ministry is concerned. He says this, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now I'm not going to call his name, but I have in mind right now, a prolific minister who was uh, absolutely phenomenal in the 90s and uh, got caught up in some incorrect doctrine and began to proclaim that there wasn't a hell and uh, that, uh, you know, that everybody gets saved. You know, Jesus paid the price for everybody. And so therefore, therefore, everybody's going to heaven. And in spite of being corrected by other well-known ministers, if I were to call their names, you would know exactly who I'm talking about. He did not give heed to that and therefore destroyed his ministry, but he's still trying to hold on and still trying to pastor and, and lead a flock. And so uh, he qualifies for this right here. He gave heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And then uh, it says that these are some of the things that they will proclaim, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. Now, turn over with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Again, Paul in his second letter to Timothy is exhorting him regarding some things that were going to be happening, not only in Timothy's time, but it's applicable to the time that we live. Verse 13, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. And, and uh, Timothy grew up in a Christian home, and he knew the Word of God. And so he, uh, he knew this Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, why is Paul warning us of these things? Why is it necessary? Why did Jesus warn, of, warn us of those things? Well, the, one of the main things is, is Satan knows that his time is short. He knows his time is running out. And so the reason that we're seeing um, these things come to pass is because Satan must introduce the faults in order to combat the real and the true. Let me say that again. The reason that we're seeing these things come to pass is Satan knows that he must introduce the faults in order to combat the real and the true. Because if, the, if, it's ju if just the real and the truth is sitting out there, then and there's no opposition to it, then people are going to flock to what's real and true. In other words, we may be seeing a revival of these evil things, but it's only because there is a revival of the real things of God that is taking place in the earth. Amen to that. So mm -hmm. we're always on the winning side. Okay. If we stay with the word of God, stay with the Holy Spirit, we're always on the winning side. Now in verse 19, back in Matthew seven, Jesus said, God will handle those uh, we believe are teaching false things. And, and listen to this. He has not called any of us to expose those false teachers and things in the earth. Now I'm going to say something and uh, I hope you hear my heart. It is not my responsibility as a pastor to stand up in my, pul my pulpit and call the names of ministers that I believe are preaching uh, false doctrine or false messages. And yet, when I look on YouTube and I look on some social media sites, I see pastors that that is what their ministry is based on, calling out people that they deem as wrong and naming them by name and just blasting the person. And really, if, if what they're saying is not scriptural, they're not doing anything to bring any light and correction where the wrong is concerned. See, God will handle that. My responsibility, what I am called to do as a pastor, is, is to preach the Word of God, teach the Word of God. Now listen, if it begins to impact the church that I am responsible to shepherd, then I must deal with some things. But for me to just stand in a pulpit because it riles the people up, and call out things that are going on, especially in the body of Christ, that is not appropriate. Now, and, you know, you will build an audience doing that. You will get people riled up and get them, yeah, yeah, we, you know, uh, you know, boo on this person and boo on that person, and we're the ones that are right, and so forth and so on. Yeah, you'll get some people that will rally and will respond to that, but here's the thing, know this, be smart enough to know this, okay? And I've learned this through many years in ministry. The only reason those people will follow you if you're doing that is because you're tickling something that riles them up. 
The moment you stop doing that, they're going to stop following you. I don't know if I'm helping y'all, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to show you some things. Okay. You it is God's responsibility to address those things, not mine. My responsibility is to equip the saints to teach the word of God and to enable the sheep that Jesus has entrusted me with to be able to grow up and become who God has called them to be. Now, again, if it begins to affect our, our church, then I will address it. Okay, but for me to just stand in the pulpit and call other ministers by name and to defame them in the pulpit serves no purpose but to build me up. And that's wrong. You know, that would be like me. You know, I don't agree with everything that the Baptist minister, the Southern Baptist, I don't agree with everything that they minister, but they're born again. They love God. They've gotten a lot of people saved. And matter of fact, you know, they've had a direct influence in my life. And so for me to stand up in the pulpit and bash the Baptist all the time is stupid. And we need to understand these things. So my responsibility is when people come to our church, and yes, they might not believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but my responsibility is to, okay, teach maybe what they're not teaching, to not bash them, but just include that and to uh, teach what God has revealed to me from the word of God, okay? So our job as believers is to preach and teach the word of God, win souls, lay hands on the sick, and minister to people, all right? Now, look at, um, let's go over to Matthew 13, please. Matthew chapter 13. I promise I'm not on a soapbox. I'm just picking up on what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7. But I see it a lot in the body of Christ. Matthew 13, verse 24. All right, and this addresses exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus said this in Matthew 13, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, Jesus is likening this to himself and believers, people that know him. Verse 25, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servants said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. In other words, it is God's responsibility to separate the tares from the wheat, not mine and not yours. 
Okay. Very, very important. Now, um, look at verse 37. The disciples, after they had some private time, they asked Jesus to explain this parable to them. And so Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 37, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So again, it is not up to us to deal with those things. God will deal with those things. And so let him deal with it. Now, you know, again, there are, uh, I'm not insinuating that we do not stand up for what is right in the sense of if it violates the word of God, but for us to just jump on bandwagons and do certain things uh, in order, and really it's very, very subtle but really the reason that we get caught up in things like this is because of pride, because there's a thing that begins to whisper to you and begins to tell you, you are better and superior to those who are outside or are in a different group than you. Okay. And we shouldn't be that way. You know, listen, um, you don't need, I'll say this to you. Now, there's nothing wrong with just having some general information, but you've, and I'm going to use this as an example. You don't need to go and study Mormonism so you can go and minister to Mormons. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Paul said this in Romans chapter one and verse 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He did not say learning other religions and learning platforms and things like that, plus the gospel is the power of God. No, the gospel is the power of God. One of our greatest examples is the apostle Paul. Paul would roll into cities that worship Greek gods, uh, you know, had all kinds of idolatry going on. He didn't try and debate them on the merits or dismerits of their particular religion. No, what he did is he rolled into town and he preached the gospel and let the power of God shine forth and let the power prove that the gospel that he preached is the real, the true gospel. All right. Now go back to Matthew seven, please. All right. Matthew seven, look at verse 20. He said this, therefore by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father enters in the narrow gate in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, real quick, turn over. You're there in Matthew 7. Turn over to Matthew 12 and look at verse 22.
Matthew 12, verse 22. So Jesus, there, there was a man brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and, excuse me, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David or is this the Messiah is what they were saying? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, look, look, pay attention to this, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, apparently, Jesus had gotten some insight on something that was going on. All right? Now, I'm going to connect the dots for you real quick. Go over with me to Acts, the 19th chapter, please. Acts, the 19th chapter. Look at verse 11. Matthew, or excuse me, Acts 19, verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And pay close attention here. Let, pick up on this detail. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Now, this same Sceva was a chief priest during Jesus' ministry. And apparently his sons were trying to go out and go around casting out demons when Jesus was ministering. Okay, so this evil spirit responded in verse 15, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Then became known, uh, this became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So what am I saying to you? Here these guys were going around and trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name, and they weren't even saved. They had mm -hmm. not even been born again. What happened to them? Well, the, the spirit responded and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? And then proceeded to whip them. Seven guys now whipped seven guys, grown men, whipped them so bad, stripped all their clothes off of, off of them, kicked them out of the house and made them run down the road naked. Now that's bad, but that's what happens when you try and function and operate in, in doing spiritual things and you don't have a relationship with Jesus 
and you're trying to function in those things. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he said, there are going to be people that come before me and say, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus is going to respond to them and say, basically, you know, listen, I never knew you depart from me. Okay. So listen, one of my point is this, is that we need to make sure that our ministry and what we do as believers is, first of all, based on a relationship with Jesus. We're walking through that narrow gate where it's me and Jesus, and that we are established in that, and that we are built in that knowledge of the Word of God. We're not easily deceived by everything that comes down the pike, and that we are established in what God has established us in, and we can't be moved out of that. The devil is not going to be able to, to deceive you and get you moved out of that. Now, I'm going to say one more thing to you, and then I'll let you read the rest of chapter seven on your own time, because we recently studied that when we were talking about the storms of life. But in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29, this is where Jesus talks about the man who hears the word and builds upon the rock and the storms came and he was able to withstand the storm and come out unscathed. So Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount and he's talking to his disciples and he's talking to those people who are uh, just, you know, the crowd that shows up. And he says this, the key to walking in a successful relationship with Jesus Christ, both in ministry and in your personal walk with him, is to do what he says, mm. not just hear what he says. And that's how he ended this sermon, which I think is a, an absolutely awesome way to, to, for him to do that. So he's telling his disciples, hey, listen, guys, if you want to be successful in ministry, then build your house. Do what I tell you to do. If you want to be a successful believer, if you want to walk as closely with Jesus as you possibly can, then do what he tells you to do. Don't just be a hearer only. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Well, that, that concludes the Sermon on the Mount. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.